Good afternoon. It's Monday the 23rd of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson, and joining me by video link, we've got Brian Gerrish, David Scott and Mark Anderson. Uh, Brian and David, obviously, in Scotland. So, um, well, we've got lots to get through today. So we'll start off uh, very quickly with the Truth Be Told uh, event, which took place over the weekend. Didn't seem to get much coverage on the BBC. Don't think there'll be any surprise about that, even though it was kicking off outside the BBC. Um, so there we can see uh, uh, part of the uh, parade uh, and more people here. Uh, the BBC has blood on their hands, says the placard. Um, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna show a couple of uh, quick uh, video clips here. First of all, we've got Andrew Bridgen. Now we were told, we were told that these novel medical treatments, we were told that they were 100% effective. That was a lie. Yeah. We were told that they stopped transmission and that was a lie. And we were told that they were safe. And I get email after email, message after message, letter after letter from people. And all that tells me that that was a lie as well. I've made my decision. I will continue to ask the questions that they don't want me to ask on your behalf. I think we still live in some sort of, of, of a democracy. Brian, I'm not certain whether uh, Andrew Bridgen is, uh, was saying that tongue-in-cheek about the democracy comment, I mean. Well, I, I hope he was, because it's very clear we're not living in a democracy. I mean, there's just no doubt about this anymore. Something else is governing the country. Um, we have said on many occasions that essentially we, we've got, there's been a coup, but uh, it's not a democracy running this, this country. Uh, interesting you use the word coup. We may be coming on to that a little bit later in the programme. But anyway, uh, Matt Letizier also gave a short presentation. This is uh, from the side, so not quite as good uh, audio quality. Uh, and uh, well, there is a little bit of swearing in this. But anyway, let's have a listen. It was a misunderstanding, really. They thought that they were doing the right thing by their government and by their fellow human beings. So you would think that having done this and sadly suffered extreme reactions and even death, that the government would be the first in the queue to say, what could we do? But they weren't the first in the queue. In fact, this is not even in the fucking queue. <laughs> David, any thoughts? Well, firstly, I, I'm i amazed at the BBC. We know the BBC are not the finest journalists in the world, but that was outside the front door. Um, they, have, they have covered the Andrew Bridgen case, his suspension, his, Mark Hancock attacking him in detail. And there he was outside their office in front of a huge crowd of people uh, making a speech and yet not a word. It's completely missing from the BBC website. So I think that, for a start, is, is a, a stunning omission. And it demonstrates the BBC are now in a position where they can no longer tell the truth because they're too frightened to. Um, and some sort of a democracy. Um, 
Alex and I, when we were last in Scotland at the previous uh, meeting in, in Motherwell, were discussing whether or not it's a, crypt, a cryptocracy, a, a rule by hidden hands, or a cacistocracy, rule by turds. Um, and uh, that's a debate that's going to go on, I think. Uh, it, it is indeed. Now, if anybody wants to uh, watch the full stream, uh, it is on C uh, Children's Self-Defence TV. Uh, so chd.tv, you'll find it on the fr front page there if you look for uh, London Truth Be Told rally, giving a voice to the injured and bereaved. Um, but uh, let's bring uh, Mark Anderson onto the programme, Mark. And uh, well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, an organisation called One Health, uh, and you've done a bit of digging on this. Yeah, the Lancet, the noted uh, health journal, medical journal, um, is explaining One Health in depth here. And you might recall I mentioned this as I've been exploring the uh, World Pandemic Treaty that's slowly under development, maybe more quickly than we think. <clears throat> and looking back at WHO meetings back this past October and everything since then, this uh, concept kept coming up, One Health, One World. And the Lancet, is uh, explaining in depth here what this is all about. They put out a uh, online posting that consists of an editorial, four reports, and a summary comment. And the uh, what we're seeing here on the screen <clears throat> is um, an excerpt of the fourth report, the fourth of out of four of them. And this says here, and I'm I'm reading the um, the main narrative, which ties into the next slide the apparent failure of global health security to prevent or prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the need for closer cooperation between human, animal, domestic and wildlife, and environmental health sectors, which is very significant. However, the many institutions, processes, regulatory frameworks, and legal instruments with direct and indirect roles in global governance, in the global governance of One Health have led to a fragmented multilateral health security architecture. And it goes on to say, um, we explore four challenges, and that's the four reports I mentioned. First, the sectoral, professional, and institutional silos and tensions existing between human, animal, and environmental health. Second, the challenge that the international legal system, state sovereignty, get that, and existing legal instruments pose for the governance of one health. Thirdly, the power dynamics and asymmetry in power between countries represented in multilateral institutions and their impact on priority setting, getting into some more global ease here. And finally, the current financing mechanisms that predominantly focus on response to crises and the chronic underinvestment for epidemic and emergency prevention, mitigation, and preparedness activities. I'll go on a little bit, uh, which is not on the screen, Despite its broad and holistic agenda, One Health continues to be dominated by human and domestic animal health experts. Substantial efforts should be made to address the social, social ecological drivers of health emergencies, including outbreaks of emerging, re-emerging, and endemic uh, infectious diseases. Uh, and get this, these drivers include climate change, biodiversity loss, land use change, and therefore require effective and enforceable legislation et cetera, et cetera. But the, the really important part uh, goes on be, uh, before we get into a graphic that'll be up next on the screen. Uh, and th this is really important. Listen to this. This uh, explains what I just got into. 
the notion that the well-being of an individual is directly connected to the well-being of the land has a long history in indigenous societies. Now the term One Health has become an important concept in global health. The One Health high-level expert panel defines One Health, listen closely, as an integrated unifying approach that aims to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people, animals, and ecosystems. It recognizes that the health of humans, domestic and wild animals, plants, and the wider environment are closely linked and interdependent. And it goes on to say One Health goes way beyond emerging infections and novel pathogens. It is the foundation for understanding and addressing the most existential threats to societies, including antimicrobial existence, uh, food and nutrition insecurity, and climate change. Modern attitudes to human health take a purely anthropocentric view that the human being is the center of medical attention and concern. Mark, However, sorry, sorry, Mark, Mark, sorry to interrupt, but we can't see you there. Uh, so you, you just you had the paper in front of the camera, unfortunately. So, so oh, just... I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Uh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, I apologize. But anyway, uh, to, to sort of summarize, it puts uh, plants, animals and people on the same ethical level. It doesn't recognize any special place in the world for for human beings. We're simply another life form. And uh, the illustration that we got on tap here uh, kind of shows how things overlap. Uh, you see wildlife and you see domestic animal, you see human, and they, they have their own spheres, their, their own spheres of influence, but then they intersect. And as you read through the material, it, it demotes humanity in, the, in terms of the, um, you might say, the pyramid of life and has a leveling effect, again, to put us on the same level with with uh, plant life and animal life and wildlife. And this, of course, raises a lot of ethical questions because the, the Lancet's uh, overall pr uh, production here, the overall uh, study is about um, uh, the World Pandemic Treaty. It's connected to that and the outlook for, for taking on any other pandemics that may come along. So they're, they're looking at a major paradigm shift, not just making more vaccines, not just doing more medical studies and rolling out more uh, boosters and things like that. They're actually reorienting how we look at humanity in the fabric of life. And it says here uh, um, the extent to which an international health treaty, human, animal, or plant affects trade is linked to its success. Treaties that financially penalize states, despite good implementation, show the conflict between national interests and a public good. Uh, I'll go down to the main uh, emphasized part uh, in, in bold. However, prior, prioritizing the national economy above IHR commitments might have negative health externalities, including suppressed reporting, delayed action, diluted outbreak response, and eroded public trust. So um, the national economies are going to take a back seat to the international health regulation commitments, which is the architecture of the World Pandemic Treaty. And it's a lot of globalese, it's a lot of rather complicated and dense language. But at the end of the day, again, it's about demoting humanity in, in the fabric of life. And here, uh, going on, digging a little deeper, the Lancet Global Health Commission on High Quality Health Systems, which is the umbrella group under which the Lancet operates, is supported by funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 
So there's the Gates uh, money again, no surprise, but uh, a rather regret regrettable thing nevertheless. And uh, there's uh, another lady that's involved in this is Margaret Crook. Uh, there's a little something about her. Uh, the Lancet Global Health Commission on High Quality Health Systems in the STG is a group of 30 academics, policymakers, and health system stakeholders from 18 countries. The commission will review current knowledge, produce new empirical work, and offer policy recommendations in a report to be published in late 2018, et cetera, et cetera. But it just shows Margaret E. Crook. She's the commission chairman. Uh, we can move on from there. And Margaret Crook is professor of health systems at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Crook's research generates evidence on how health systems can improve health for people living in low-income countries. That's just a little something about her. Uh, moving on from there, uh, the Lancet, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the Lancet itself. It's a weekly peer-reviewed general medical journal, one of the oldest of its kind. It is also the world's highest impact academic journal founded in England in 1823. The journal publishes original research articles, uh, gets into seminars and reviews, editorials, book reviews, correspondence. The Lancet's been owned by Elsevier since 1991 and its editor-in-chief since 1995 has been Richard Horton. It has offices in London, New York City, and Beijing. Um, moving, moving on forward from there. Elsevier is a Dutch academic publishing company, which includes The Lancet, and it's part of the Relics Group. And uh, researchers have criticized Elsevier, Elsevier, I hope I'm saying that right, for its high profit margins and copyright practices uh, the company earned $942 million in profit uh, in 2018. I won't get into all those details, but it has been accused of some, some wrongdoing. And here's uh, uh, Richard Charles Horton, the editor-in-chief of The Lancet. He's an advocate for the World Health Organization, so there's not a lot of objectivity there. Uh, he was the first president of the, of the World Association of Medical Editors, past president of the U.S. Council of Science Editors, he was appointed to a research and analytical management panel as a senior associate of the Nuffield Trust. And uh, so this is just some of the background, some of it a little dry, but one of the interesting things as I wind this part up is the Nuffield Trust was established in December 1939 as the Nuffield Provincial Hospitals Trust by the Viscount Nuffield William Morris, the founder of Morris Motors, said to be a right winger in his day, by the way. Indeed, one of its first tasks of the Nuffield Trust was a complete survey of hospitals, which was used as a key reference document in the actual establishment of the British National Health Service, the NHS. So this gets into the, the roots of the NHS, and it grows up from there into the present time. And uh, again, uh, redefining humanity's place in the world with respect to fighting so-called pandemics. So this gives a picture of what One Health is really about. I know it's kind of a lot to absorb right now, but do you guys have any comments or observations? Uh, David? Yes, I, I was fascinated by the use of the word balance because it's not it's not just that they're equating human health and wildlife health and livestock health, but they're talking about balancing these things. Now, a balance, in, it, it brings to mind a seesaw and one side goes up and one side goes down. So are they saying, well, for the good of the planet, we're going to have to make at some point humans less healthy, right? Because on balance, this is a good thing. It, I, I, I find it very strange language indeed. 
Any thoughts, Brian? Well, my thought on it is that we are now starting to, to actually, I'll call it the regime, see the regime emerge and understand what the regime really wants. But from, from my take on uh, what Mark Anderson has just covered is that absolutely mankind is to be reduced to the level of just another animal. And of course, the moment you do that, you all the rest applies. So if there's too many of man animal, you're going to have a cull to get the numbers down. You're going to balance it with all the other things that they think are important in the planet. So I, I think this is critical language because it's absolutely showing us that these people place no value on human beings whatsoever. We're just like any other farmed animal. And that being the mentality, of course, it's very I think it's logical to say that if they want to reduce the numbers of mankind, they're going to use a variety of ways to do that. We may neglect elderly people and simply let them die off. Or I think it's reasonable to suggest that there may be people within this regime who say we should take a more proactive approach and we should actually kill off the useless eaters. And we're going to do that by medication. Uh, we're going to actually put them on end of, of life pathways and kill them off, or we're going to make sure they don't feed properly, or we're going to poison particularly babies and children to make sure that the numbers of human beings can be, can be reduced. That's uh, what I think these people are now showing us. That warfare, uh, we could also talk about uh, encouragement for euthanasia, for, for example, in Canada at the moment. Uh, and so on. Uh, okay, well, look, let, let's move on and let's move on to warfare and Ukraine. Uh, and we're going to start off with, uh, speaking of Canada, uh, Christian Freeland, uh, speaking at the at Davos last week. Um, let's just have a listen to what she said here. But I think we in the West also need to understand that that victory that President Zelensky spoke about and that time which he said we need to use. Um, it's not about doing Ukraine favors um, that we're talking about. Supplying Ukraine with weapons, and as President Zelensky very crucially pointed out, supplying Ukraine with the money it needs to win the war is ultimately in our own self-interest. So I'm a finance minister, and if you were to say to me, what is the one thing that G7 finance ministers, G7 governments this year could do that's actually in our power, right? We don't control COVID. We don't control global supply chains. We don't control whether there will be immaculate disinflation or not. One thing where we have some real practical levers is we can help Ukraine win clearly, definitively. And if we do that, if that happens this year, you know it as well as I do, Fareed. That would be a huge boost to the global economy. 
sorry, I should have said before uh, we put uh, Christia on, of course, she is the Canadian finance minister. Uh, so we're going to uh, fund and uh, arm Ukraine in order to push forward uh, and develop the global economy. That seems to be what she's saying. Certainly what Maria Zakharova thought. Uh, here she is. She said the granddaughter of uh, the uh, Mel Melnikovist uh, from the Nazi allied Ukrainian insurgent army, who in recent years has repeatedly reminded herself of herself by open support for the Nazis in Ukraine and Russophobic statements. Uh, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, has stated publicly that Russia's defeat would be a huge boost to the global economy. This is a 21st century war for resources, plain and simple. Uh, so that is uh, uh, Maria Zakharova's uh, uh, attitude to this. Uh, just to make the point about uh, Christian Freeland and the Nazi connection, uh, here's Consortium News from a couple of years ago, of 2017, in fact, the Nazi skeleton in the closet. Uh, Freeland's grandfather, uh, according to Canadian sources, says Consortium News, uh, her grandfather graduated from Lviv University in Western Ukraine with a master's degree in law and political science. He began a career with the Galician newspaper Dilo, uh, published in Lviv. After the start of World War II, the Nazi administration appointed him to be editor of the newspaper uh, News of Krakow. So uh, strong connections there between her family uh, in the past and uh, uh, Literally, the, the Nazi party, David, perhaps uh, it's a stretch, perhaps it isn't a stretch, we don't really know, to say, that maybe it's unfair to say that uh, she feels the same, but this is certainly her background and the support uh, for that section of Ukrainian society is has been pretty clear over the last several months. Well, she's a finance minister this is this is how she identifies she didn't identify herself as a nazi she identified herself as a finance minister looking at international finance and international economics so let's look at her economic prescription for a healthy economy it's victory not peace it's victory which uh, economic program does that remind you of it's, just, it's essentially the same as the economic program of Nazi Germany, which was um, a, a, a lot of public spending and, and, and a lot of boosting of the economy to a point where it was about to collapse and then, then invasion of surrounding countries and the solution to economic woes was going to be victory. So at least in her economic policies, if nothing else, I don't know what's in her heart, um, there are similarities there that are concerning. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, also at Davos uh, last week, Boris Johnson was there, of course, and uh, well, he was very thankful uh, that the Pinchuk Fund for host to the Pinchuk fund, fund, sorry, for hosting the Ukrainian breakfast breakfast at Davos. The session, he said, demonstrated the unity across nations that Ukraine must and will win. We must ensure that Zelensky has the tools he needs to finish the job. This is the moment to double down. Uh, and so doubling down indeed, the following day, he heads off to Ukraine to be the guest of uh, uh, Mr. Zelensky. Uh, and here's the Defence of Ukraine tweeting out, friends like these, this is Boris Johnson, are worth more than a squadron of tanks. We're glad to welcome Boris Johnson to Ukraine, a person who's been with the Ukrainian people since day one. Uh, so uh, before we move on to the issue of tanks, Brian, uh, what are your thoughts on Boris's trip, his continued support? Uh, what's he up to here? Well, that's 
That's a good question, Mike. What is he up to and who's he working for? Is he there representing the British government or is he there working for people behind the scenes, the uh, globalist masters in Davos themselves, maybe? What is he doing there? Who's paying for his trip? Is this through um, is this through the Foreign Office, effectively? Um, or is this a private trip for private discussions with Zelensky? The key bit is that the UK public doesn't know, and we need to know. But what he isn't doing there, we can be 100% sure of, he is not calling for an end to the fighting. He's not there to protect lives. I think that uh, he's gone there because they are now desperate to try and keep Ukraine fighting. And as we shall see in just a few minutes, the reality is that Ukraine is losing and they are starting to lose badly. The cracks are appearing. So Boris has been sent in in order to try and shore up the Zelensky regime. This is my opinion, in order to keep the fighting going. We've got bankers there. You showed the lady. She's not interested in peace. She believes that if they can continue the fight, there can be economic monetary benefit out of it. These these are very dangerous individuals. Right. Well, you, you asked the question who funded it. So let me just mention that whoever the person who funded the uh, the breakfast at Davos uh, was Victor Pinchuk Foundation. Now, Victor Pinchuk is a Ukrainian businessman oligarch uh, worth something in the region of one and a half billion dollars. Um, but his foundation, just to give an idea of the background here, supports and works uh, with a variety of partners, including the network uh, Yalta European Strategy, created to promote Ukraine's European integration. Also, the Clinton Global Initiative, the Kiev School of Economics, the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, the Brookings Institution, uh, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, uh, the Israeli Presidential Conference uh, facing tomorrow, uh, and uh, the Legal Clinic's Legal Aid Projects of the Renaissance Foundation. So perhaps that's where he's getting the money from, Brian. Well, you, you, you've nailed it down there. Every time we look into our politicians and what they're doing, yes, they might be working inside the national government system part of the time, but the rest of the time, they're deeply involved with think tanks or trusts or overseas groups, uh, whoever those may be. And those people are completely unaccountable. I think we are now absolutely in the phase where national governments have been subsumed into this globalist structure. And when we see the, the politicians, uh, the chosen few, because it's clear that the rest of them don't understand what's going on. But when we're looking at the chosen few like Boris Johnson, they are simply now being used um, as the puppets for the globalist policy. And of course, to do this needs huge amounts of money. So we're looking at the hedge funds, we're looking at the, the huge non-governmental organisations, Bill and Melinda Gates, Tony Blair, to name a few. Yes, well, let's come on to the issue of tanks then, because the tank saga continues. Uh, here it goes. Uh, of course, the uh, Ramstein meeting taking place a few days ago, a couple of days ago, and uh, well, no progress seems to be made uh, with respect to Germany actually providing tanks themselves, but perhaps uh, progress has been made with respect to others that hold uh, Leopard tank, German Leopard tanks being allowed to export those. So uh, here's uh, Annalena Baerbock uh, saying, for the moment, the question has not been asked. 
Well, actually, the question was be asked, or rather, the Polish president said, we are sending the tanks. So perhaps the question wasn't asked formally, but certainly the statement was made. Uh, but if we were asked, we would not stand in the way. And she was talking about Poland sending the leopards to Ukraine. Uh, she went on to say, uh, we know how important these tanks are. And this is why we're discussing this now with our partners. But in the meantime, uh, certainly Germany not so interested in actually providing, seemingly still not interested in providing tanks themselves. So I wonder what I wondered this morning what NATO's response to this would be. Well, they, this is the type of thing they were tweeting out this morning, this little uh, video clip about uh, HIMARS being deployed to Latvia uh, and uh, able to be moved to Latvia in under three hours. Uh, this is apparently part of a, re, uh, a routine exercise, uh, part of the military mobility uh, situation. But as well as that, they were pushing out uh, other little reports uh, all about the multinational battle groups defending the eastern flank and very proud of the fact that since 2014, and I think that's an extremely significant date, uh, David, I don't know if you've got any comments on this, but since 2014, NATO has increased its troops uh, in the eastern part of the alliance. Uh, so there's an admission here uh, in this uh, video that they pushed out this morning uh, that uh, they have continued to put, you know, keep pressure on, uh, on, on Russia. And so, you know, there are these little uh, this short recognitions from time to time from NATO that they have actually sort of effectively caused what's going on uh, in Ukraine at the moment by this constant pressure pushing eastwards. Well, there certainly has been constant pressure. And 2014 is obviously the date when the, the, the pressure and the political initiatives in the Ukraine cranked up to an, an altogether new and higher level. Um, and, okay, there may be occasional nods in the direction that, yes, NATO has has pushed the Russians to this. But, of course, no one is looking at the 2008 declaration that announced that Ukraine would become a, matter of, a member of NATO. It was only a matter of time and was already in, involved in the map, the... the, the um, uh, accession process, uh, member accession process for entry into NATO. And remember, that means all of Ukraine, that means including the Crimea, and that, that was a huge existential threat to Russia. Everybody recognised that as such sensible voices in the West, and certainly the voices inside the Kremlin, recognised that as, a, as an existential threat to Russia uh, that was going to push them towards, towards war. Um, there's never been any real admission that NATO recognizes that, that 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 Western governments and Western capitals recognize that, uh, let alone wish to address it. Uh, indeed. So, uh, Brian, uh, other than those two little video clips, total silence uh, on NATO's uh, Twitter feed this morning about tanks. What's the media been up to? Uh, well, the media is up to silence because they've got big, uh, big problems. Now, I just did a, a very loose search for tanks and, and Ukraine on the Internet. If we pop the uh, first slide up on screen, uh, what do we see? Well, we see trouble because nobody's too sure what's going on. So we've got Russia, Ukraine, sorry, Russia, Ukraine war live. Pressure builds up on Germany to make a decision on sending tanks. Poland to seek Berlin's approval to send tanks to Ukraine. 
Um, we will send leopard tanks to Ukraine with or without German approval. Huge bro blow for Putin as Germany says it won't block Poland sending leopard two tanks. And the last one there, German foreign minister will not stop Poland sending Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. So at the moment, we've got, we've got a tremendous situation where nobody knows what's going on. There's utter chaos within NATO. Clearly, the Germans do not want to send tanks uh, to uh, Ukraine. And I think there's two big reasons for this. One, because there's still a groundswell of opinion in Germany um, that the Germans uh, have fought a terrible war on the Eastern Front with the Russians, and many Germans don't want to get involved with that again. But I think the second problem is that the Leopard tank did not perform well in Syria. Uh, we've covered this on the UK column, but people can check it for themselves, that relatively inexperienced and ill-equipped forces in Syria were able to destroy the mighty leopard. And that being the case, if the leopard goes into Ukraine, the Russians are going to destroy this pitiful number of tanks. And what is that going to do for the German arms industry? Well, it's going to be an advert, don't buy our tanks because people destroy them. And that, I believe, is the key reason why the Americans don't want to put the Abrahams tank into Ukraine. Yes, it's very heavy, and that's a problem on soft ground, and the ground is still soft in many, in many areas. But the key bit is that when those uh, Abrahams tanks go into Ukraine, the Russians are going to destroy them, and the pictures of those destroyed high-tech, supposedly NATO tanks, is going to wreck the arms industry. So part of what's happening here, I think, is political within NATO, but you can be sure that the military-industrial military complex is pushing very hard that they don't want those tanks to go in. But here's the real stinger. If we move on to the next slide, we start to uh, understand what the problem is, because the mainstream media at the moment is simply not commenting on what even Zelensky is having to talk about. And here we can see on screen uh, the report that Zelensky himself is now having to admit that 50 tanks will not solve the problem. And if we go on one more, we can see his actual quote. Uh, so Zelensky here saying, when the Russian army with a thousand tanks is against us, 10, 20 or 50 tanks provided by the countries will not solve the problem. They do a very important job. They will motivate, motivate our fighters to fight for their values because they see that the world, he means, is on their side. So he's recognising that if the tanks arrive, they're going to help boost morale. But what is the point of sending 50 tanks when the Russians have got thousands of tanks and thousands of proper armoured vehicles? So even Zelensky now is in a rat trap. But is that the connection with um, Boris Johnson visiting, that Boris is there to try and keep Zelensky fighting uh, whenever, where, although Zelensky himself knows there's a problem? Now, the other area where there's total silence in the media is the reality of what's happening on the battlefield. And the reality is that the Russians are now starting to make major progress. They're beginning to break into the second defence layers in Ukraine. They're beginning to spread out, and it's clear that there's increasing um, confusion within the Ukrainian side. So 
if we pop the first map on screen and I'm going to give a big thank you to the amateur reporters that are putting this material up on screen but we've got a map here showing Bakhmud uh, which is top right on your picture and the key bit is that Bakhmud is now surrounded it is it is cut off by Russian fire systems it's drawn in thousands and thousands of Ukrainians their casualties have been horrific but the Russians can play as much time as they want because the supply routes to Bakhmut are now cut off. And if you look at the red uh, down in center screen or down towards the southwest, bottom left of your screen, this is indicating how the Russian forces are now moving very quickly through the rear areas of the uh, Ukrainian defense. So the Russians can wait as long as they want they don't need to sacrifice thousands of troops to take Bakhmud. Bakhmud will fall because the Ukrainians can't resupply it. And if we go on to the next one, I've just taken some clips from a social media channel that I have found to be very accurate. And I've tried to keep this as simple as possible. Um, but you, you've, got, um, you've got some arrows on screen giving a general indication of how the Russians are now moving forward. Uh, I'll do the one on the right of the screen first because this is showing how the Russians have cut off defences to the north of Bakhmud. Uh, the one on the left of the screen is showing what's happening in the southwestern sector. And if we go on to the next two map slides, um, we've got advances around New York. Yes, that is the real name of the place. And also um, defences around the Solidar area. So Solidar, still not recognized as having fallen by the Ukrainian propaganda, but the reality is that the fall of Solidar was, was the key piece in the puzzle for the Russians. This has allowed them to surround Bakhmud, and they can take their time until those soldiers either fight to the death or surrender. But the, the key bit is that uh, the Russians are moving through the rear areas and if that wasn't bad enough, the Russians have also started to attack in the Zaporozhye region. region. This is the central southern front in Ukraine. Uh, so on screen, if you look at the left map where you can see the red line, the Russians are pushing forward. Now, many people say, oh, but the Russians are not doing very well because they're only moving um, a few hundred yards, sometimes a day or half a mile. But the reality is the Russians are doing this deliberately because they are minimizing their own casualties whilst inflicting maximum casualties on the Ukrainians. And uh, just, just before I come back to you, Mike, the key thing about the Russian attack in this area is this is the very area where Zelensky has been boasting for a number of months that the Ukrainians were going to counterattack and drive south right down to Mariupol. So the Russians have now demonstrated that all of this is complete nonsense. And the reality is that uh, we have breakdowns starting to occur, silence in the BBC and the Western media, because they don't report the truth from the battlefield. I'll just come back to you before I move on to what the BBC has to say. Well, I had one question in my mind, and that is this. Um, the Russians are taking this approach to the situation and they're moving forward quite slowly. But in the meantime, they're, you know, absolutely doing huge 
amounts of damage to the personnel of, of the Ukrainian army. And in the meantime, the West, who says that they are backing Ukraine to the hilt, are not providing Ukraine with the weapons that they need to actually provide a, um, a reasonable counterattack or uh, to make progress themselves. And this sort of reminds me very much of the First World War, Brian, where, you know, we're moving forward a few hundred yards, we're moving back a few hundred yards, and not, the progress is, is never really being made, except that people are dying in, in huge, huge numbers. And, and it just seems to me that, that, that or is it wrong to say that the, that the West has taken a decision to allow this to happen? Uh, well, let's deal with the first point. What, what is not happening is that the, the Russians have been brought to a standstill on the battlefield. This is, just, this is just not true. The Russians have been happy to be in a position where they can simply shell the Ukrainian army to pieces. And if we come back on the losses, the, the most accurate figures I come across, let, let's do one with a bit of detail to it, it's talking about 120, 125,000 Ukrainians killed, but on, a, on top of that, 35,000 missing in action believe killed. This brings us up to this 150,000 Ukrainian killed figure with probably four, four 500,000 wounded on top of that. And because of the shelling ratio, which we've talked before, Russian at Russia outshelling the Ukrainians by six to one, nine to one. This has been going on for months. The Russian casualties compared to the Ukrainian casualties are very small. So the Russians can drag this war out much, much longer than Ukraine can because they are destroying the Ukrainian military. The other factor is that it is clear the Russian army has made a decision it's going to minimize casualties in the Russian army, and therefore they're working through these defended areas, which extend still in many places behind, behind every hedgerow, every small village. The Ukrainians have spent years def, uh, producing these defenses. The Russians are absolutely not wasting soldiers on them. They're just methodically moving through and destroying them. But what's clear from everything I've seen over the last three days is the Russians are now picking up pace. Bakhmut is trapped. It, it, it's been the death place for thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainians. And now we're seeing the Russians starting to move forward again. So I, I'm going to say what I think is going to happen is you're going to see increasing breakdown in the Ukrainian defences. And one, so I may not have got onto your second question. This is not the, this is not the, not World War One. What is you, what is NATO doing? Well, I believe that NATO is now suffering from its own propaganda. They believed that they could create a war where the Ukrainians could cause such devastation to the Russians, the Russians would be caught in a, a bog and mire. And ultimately, they'd suffer the casualties. This would destabilize Putin and NATO could get its regime changed. The warfare has not delivered that. What, what Putin and the Russians have demonstrated is that their missile system has transformed the battlefield. So Ukraine has been destroyed, its infrastructure destroyed. It no longer functions as a country. 
it's reliant on the West. And the West, certainly as far as munitions and weapons goes, does not have the industrial capacity to give Ukraine the weapons it needs to win. So the reality is NATO has delivered itself into a situation where it is NATO that is losing as the Russians demonstrate the power of their armed forces. And yep, this is a pretty difficult thing for me to say as a man who was, who was there on the NATO side during the Cold War. But if I look at what's happening on the battlefield, it's clear that Russia has completely outclassed the West and NATO is now floundering around. But let's just move on to what the media does and does not report. And I've got a front page from the BBC. This was from earlier this morning. And what do you notice on it? You notice that there is no comment on the battlefield. There's nothing to do with the fighting. This is, these are hype articles. But let's look at the one I've highlighted in red in the center. What does the BBC report? Well, if we bring it fully on screen, Russia, Putin's Kremlin targets LGBT in new crackdown. So we're not talking about tens of thousands of Ukrainians dead and dying. The BBC is trying to switch people's attention to the fact that Putin is such a nasty man. He's brought in a law to uh, stop the sexual grooming of children, essentially. And if we go through to the main part of the article, um, we've got uh, a journalist called Will Vernon. Um, he's on about a monster drag queen in Russia uh, who's very proud as he puts on the makeup in, in front of a mirror, a rainbow flag adorning the wall. But what's he worried about? Putin's uh, brought in a new anti-LGBT law and uh, this is going to bring in uh, fines for anyone caught uh, indulging in what uh, the Russians are calling the propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. So never mind the war in Ukraine, never mind 150,000 dead Ukrainians and 500,000 wounded, never mind any of that. The Russians are winning. Switch attention back to the fact that the real issue is we've got to allow uh, drag queens to be alongside our children. It, it, it's outrageous. Perhaps I could just ask um, David if, if he'd like to respond on this. He, he was with me when I discovered this article this morning, and I just found it so disgusting. Well, I mean, it is outrageous because they're not reporting the news and they're trying to run, they're, they're trying to, to pick out our particular individual, right, who has who has extreme views on, on um what you term sexuality, queer theory, and all the rest of it. And they're trying to make a cause of that, which is the same cause of pushing in the West. Um, and they're ignoring all of the reality. They're ignoring reality everywhere. And there's an increasing un unworldliness, I, I can, I can, an increasing um, tendency for the BBC no longer to be anchored to anything substantial. They run these stories... They're meant to get an emotional response, meant to make you feel pity for this individual. They're meant to make you blame Putin, and they're meant to make you not think. They're, it's an offer to you to put your brain into neutral, not analyze anything, and just feel the emotion and go with the mob. And, and this is the very opposite of what the BBC 
was founded to do and should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll just finish this off very quickly because I did, did what I always do. Let's look at the journalist himself. So here's Will Vernon on screen, uh, senior journalist, BBC News Moscow Bureau, um, mostly Russia, but found in other countries. Well, when I go to his Twitter page, and I took a couple of tweets, his pinned tweet is still from August 22. And uh, sorry, from August the 22nd, 2022. And he's talking about six months after invading Ukraine, Russia's military has a problem, not enough men, too many dead and wounded. In response, the authorities are encouraging Russians to sign up as volunteer fighters. So he's misleading the public by that pin tweet. But then immediately underneath it, you, you've got another image of the sorts of people that Will Vernon thinks the Russians should be encouraging. Well, the Russians are not only not encouraging them, they've decided they're going to protect society from this perverted agenda. But what is the BBC doing? It's, it's doing its very best to um, spread this agenda inside UK. So we've abandoned reporting on the callousness and the brutality in the war with an underlying possibility of worldwide World War Three, and the BBC is focusing on this despicable, perverted um, issue, which is which is now attacking children in this country, and clearly it's it's seen as a, as an attack on children in Russia. So I, I think we've got to say, many years ago we thought the BBC had reached the bottom of the barrel, but we're now watching the BBC just rolling in the gutter despicable organization yes okay if you like what the uk column does uh, never mind the bbc and you'd like to support us and please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org your uh, ongoing support would be very much appreciated uh, you could pick something up at the uk column shop uh, but please do share material that you find on the various platforms now david uh, uh, similar topic strangely enough uh, but uh, you wanted to highlight some letters to the editor. Yes, this is published on the UK Call Me News uh, channel, uh, main news website uh, at the moment. Uh, letters to the editor. This, this was in response to um, a report on 9th of January regarding Scotland's uh, legislation to ban conversion therapy. So this person writes, I'm a sociologist and I've been a researcher on adult sexual attraction to children. And I published two books on the topic. During my research, men in the community, often unknown to any authorities, contacted me confidentially to say they were sexually attracted to children and thus, themselves, and thus uh, defined themselves as paedophiles. Uh, some of these men understood the, the harm that adult sexual contact with children causes to the children. And they did not want to act on their urges. They wanted help and therapy. One man described how therapy had enabled him to move away from his paedophile identity, and he's now happily married and no longer finds children sexually attractive. Other men told me of the horrific fantasies they had, um, but were at the time managing to keep under control. So she asks, would such men now be supported and affirmed in the paedophilic sexual identity under the new legislation proposed for Scotland? Um, even where this made more light, uh, would... Uh, would this make them more likely to act on their fantasies? Would they be denied therapy that aimed to alter their sexual behaviour? And um, she continued, I predict the next step will be um, an engineered form of children demand the right to sexual exploration with 
whoever they choose, including adults. I also predict some human rights lawyer will get involved, possibly, including a man named David SI Dr. Richard Green, a lawyer both in the US and UK, who was instrumental in getting homosexuality moved from the DSM-3, uh, the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in the 1970s, and subsequently uh, the move to redefine paedophilia as a sexual orientation. Um, the DSM definition is now a neurological mess and who more recently has been championing trans rights. I see a horrifying return to 1970s push to normalize child sexual abuse. It needs to be countered as strongly as possible. Uh, you won't believe how powerful this movement has been in academia for many decades. Very worrying statement. On a follow-up email, she said, um, in every population, uh, as far as we know, an unknown uh, percentage of people, mainly men, find themselves with a fixed involuntary sexual attraction to children. Very simplified cultures can uh, broadly respond in one of four ways. One, no big deal. Two, oh, what fun. Three, you're sick and evil. We hate you. You're an evil monster. You're going to offend. It's only a matter of time. There's no help available. You and the children are doomed. Or four, okay, we understand it's involuntary attraction. You didn't choose it, but you can choose how you respond. We will encourage you to come forward, offer therapy, to deal safely and harmlessly with your sexual attraction and shift it to a, an attraction to adults if we can. The corollary is if you choose to offend, you will be punished severely. No culture currently offers option four, although charities, uh, some charities in the UK, um, do base their, their conduct on that. It's probably too late for our culture overall now to act responsibly. We seem to be set on shifting from options one and three neither of which could ever protect children effectively to option two, which is absolutely disastrous for child protection. Now, th this, th this, this, this lady um, will be, uh, this is uh, Sarah Good, um, PhD. She will be uh, conducting an interview with UK Column shortly, uh, and we'll go into these issues in much more detail. Uh, but I think it was a, a matter very much worth highlighting the the view towards the sexualization of children is very likely to be accompanied um, with a breakdown of the protection, the legal protection that is offered to children. Uh, it will be done via rights, it will be done um, via it's unfair not to, it will be done using all of the emotive language that we're used to seeing, and it will leave children horribly exposed and open to abuse, and it will strip them of the protection that they so desperately need. I think she's right to raise the alarm on that. And this is a matter that the column is going to be reporting on intensely over the next uh, months. Okay, thank you for that, David. Uh, now, Brian, uh, the question is, why in Scotland? And uh, what have you seen since you've been there? So first of all, we, we have a, a demonstration in Glasgow. Uh, well, yes, this, this was uh, a demonstration about uh, vaccine harms, but also really it was a free, uh, another freedoms um, demonstration with people pointing out that we are being more and more controlled by the, uh, by the state and our lives controlled. Uh, but a really fantastic day if you're about to, to oh, sorry, that, so that was the freedom demonstration. We played a clip of that earlier on because, of course, there was a demonstration in London as well. Um, but the second thing which took place yesterday was the Fenethi. Uh, conference, which uh, David Scott has spent a great deal of time and effort to help set up. Uh, and my goodness, I 
Well, I'm pausing because it was an extremely emotional day as a number of uh, ladies were brave enough to come up on stage and describe their experiences many years ago when they were little girls of five, seven, eight, nine, and they went through a supposed uh, uh, refuge called uh, Fenethi. Uh, many of them thought they were going there for holiday, uh, but what they experienced was, was brutal and really very difficult to listen to. Uh, I'd like David to comment as well, because I was, I was there to listen and learn, and I was also given the opportunity to sum up towards the end of the event, but it was David who has worked very hard with those ladies to make it happen. Well, it, it, was, a, it, it was a very emotional, but, but really very um, tremendous day. Um, the, the, the courage of the ladies to sport was 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 actually inspiring. I, I mean, the, the, more than one of them, you could see them the, the the nerves, the difficulty they had in standing up, but they did it anyway, and they 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 they, they spoke to their colleagues, the 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 other women who were there. Um, they 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 told they told the, the stories clearly and and beautifully and courageously. And I mean, I was struck. I, I, there's some things that really left an, a huge impression. Many things that one of them was as they described their experiences as little girls in, in, under a brutal, aggressive, sadistic uh, environment where where fear ruled. And they would describe what they did. The number of times as little children that they turned, they 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 stood up to the brutality. They told the truth when they were ordered to lie. They helped a sister when they were told not to. The, the, the courage they showed both then and now is, is very inspiring. Um, the, the day was, the, the day as it developed, it got more and more positive as we started to talk about positive things we could do. And we started to talk about the next steps. So that was extremely encouraging. We will be putting this all together as a video. It'll probably take a couple of weeks to edit it all down, and we'll be putting it out as a as a single video of the Fonetti conference. Um, I hope people will watch. It's some of it is a difficult watch. Uh, some of it is is, is upsetting. It has to be uh, admitted. But overall, it's it, it was it was an inspiring day, and um, it was a it was a privilege for Brian and I to be there. Uh, uh, Mike, if I could just if I could just come back in, we've got three um, images of the conference, which we can pop up on screen. It uh, was opened by a gentleman called John Shields. Uh, he's uh, experienced truly horrific things with the establishment in Scotland over what happened to his own son. Uh, the second image uh, we've got uh, David uh, doing his uh, his uh, his role of organizer and. Uh, liaison man, I think, with the Fenethi survivors. So he's miking up one of the ladies. Now, some of the ladies have agreed uh, that we can show the footage. Some were happy to speak, but they wanted to remain anonymous to the wider public. So we will, of course, um, adhere to that. Uh, the final slide is a very interesting gentleman called John Halley. Now, he's, he's uh, effectively a, a Scottish solicitor but he's also done a lot of work uh, to do with child abuse. He's also worked for a short time alongside the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry. Uh, it was very interesting 
not only to see how he reacted to the stories these uh, women had to tell, but also what he had to say about the setup of the child abuse inquiry in Scotland. And perhaps I could just highlight for our audience that this all this Fenethi um, organization was running for about 30 years. Uh, girls were going there for relatively short spaces of time. Uh, it might be a few days or it might be a few weeks. On average, we, we can say with confidence there was at least 2,000 little girls going uh, to this uh, place, this big house, every year. That continued for 30 years. And so the reality is over that, uh, that passage of that time, um, possibly 60, 70,000 little girls brutalised. And as many of the ladies said on stage, what happened in a few days or a few weeks at, at Fenethi not only changed their lives, it often destroyed their lives and their ability to form relationships. Why was the event on? Because the Scottish government and police Scotland, of course, have shown uh, a distinct reluctance to investigate or even take statements and investigate what the ladies are saying. So it's taken a lot of effort by the ladies themselves and David Scott and the UK column to start to give these really brave survivors a voice. Okay, Brian, thank you very much for that. Now let's uh, move on to economic issues. And David, I'm, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on this. Uh, Civitas has published uh, a paper today, uh, a, a document today called An Analysis of the Effects of Taxes and Benefits on Household Income. And it's, it's quite staggering. Uh, so let's just have a quick look at what they're saying. In 2020, 2021, the most recent year for which data are available, 54.2% of individuals live in households which received more in benefits, including the imputed value of health and education than they paid in taxes. This is equivalent to 36 million individuals. Uh, this proportion, the net dependency ratio, is the highest on record. Uh, they go on to say in 2020, 2021, the top quintile, the top fifth of households as measured by equivalized household income, paid an average of £35,399 more in taxes than they received in benefits. Conversely, in the same year, each of the bottom three quintiles, that's 39.8 million individuals, received on average more in benefits than they paid in taxes. This meant, so they had an overall average transfer of £12,033. So, so the bottom quintile had, so if we just put that back on screen a second, please, Stephanie. The bottom quintile had £17,648 £17, extra income than they paid in taxes. The second from bottom had £13,469 extra income than they paid in taxes. And the third quintile, 4983 And so, David, my question to you very briefly is, uh, how is that sustainable? <laughs> well, it's not, Mike. But firstly, the, 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 the left, the Green Party, etc., will say it's not enough. They'll say, soak the rich, tax the, tax the rich more. The, 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 these people, they, they, need to, they need to pay their fair share, right? And it's quite clear that they're being destroyed by the taxation system. Middle class is being stripped out. It, it will no longer exist very shortly. Um, we're getting into a point where it's diminishing returns because the more they tax the productive part, the productive and successful parts of the economy, the smaller they get, the power to tax and the power to destroy. 
But actually, worse, worse of all, worst of all, is the effect it has on the poorest parts of society. Uh, the 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 destruction, the 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 moral destruction of the poorest parts of society, the dependency culture, the hopelessness that all of this breeds is 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 cruel. Um, this is a failing system. It's a system that is that is running on empty, and uh, it's it's it cannot be sustained. It's yeah, but not it's not sustainable. It's not just about cruelty, is it, David? Because of course, if you've got a significant proportion of your population absolutely de uh, dependent upon income coming from government, there's very little scope for protest or any opportunity to to, to say anything about the government because the, the the danger is you have your your income taken away. Well, it used to be called bread and circuses, uh, and it hasn't really changed much since Roman times. Um, the one of the big problems with democracy is once once people figure out they can vote themselves other people's money, you're basically it's all over by the shouting. But one of the biggest problems we have is the is the state control. How many people accepted the COVID lockdown and all the rest of it because they were simply habituated to saying yes to government because government was the big daddy that was handing out all of the goodies. So they're not going to object. It's buying people's loyalty. Mm. It doesn't work as an economic system, but it does work as a control system. Okay, well, staying with economy then, uh, let's head over to back up to Scotland and transport. Yes, um, several things on transport. So Transport Scotland here have announced that we're going to drive less. 20% uh, reduction in car kilometres by 2030, they say. So this has been decided. No one's asked us, but uh, we've been told by the great and the good. Now, they, to, they, they justify this in an interesting way. Transport is Scotland's biggest contributor to climate change, emitting over a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, within this, the largest share uh, of transport emissions comes from cars, amounting to 38%. Uh, the predominance of private car use therefore cannot be overlooked. So they're going to cut private car use because of global warming. And they quote some figures, but they're not really thinking it through. Um, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere is 0.04%, 400 parts per million. 3% of that comes from man-made man um, CO2. The rest is natural. Of that 3%, Britain produces a, just under 1%, about 0.9%. Of that, Scotland produces about 9% of that. Um, of that, transport is 25%, as, this, as Transport Scotland have said. Of that, cars is 38%. And of that, they're going to reduce by 20%. And if you multiply 0.04% by 3%, by 0.9%, by 9%, by 25%, by 38%, by 20%, you get the grand total in CO2 reduction due to Transport Scotland of 0 0.00. 00000185%, right? This is a justification based on nothing, right? There is no scientific justification for this whatsoever, but they're pushing it nonetheless. Um, now, if we go then to the next aspect of this, uh, which is the 20-minute city, 20-minute neighbourhoods, the big issue here reporting, um, uh, the uh, reporting the statements by the transport secretary in Scotland, um, who said that uh, they're going to use planning reforms, we've been approved this week, to create 20 minute neighbourhoods to prioritise tackling 
the climate crisis and reaching net zero. Tom Arthur, who's the SNP's uh, planning minister. Now, again, there is no there is no reason or logic. This is just blind adherence to a faith. Um, but it's very interesting to note that it's the planning system that's going to be used. Um, the next slide here, uh, Arthur said the new framework was one of the most important changes since the modern planning system was introduced in 1948. So this is not minor. This is huge. 1948 uh, Town and Country Planning Act was a huge reduction in personal liberty in this country. And this is another one via the planning system once again. He added that it will support the development of communities in the economy, quote, in ways that are both sustainable and, and fair, end quote, none of which really means anything. These are code words. These are emotive code words um, relating to the, the agenda, not relating to anything real, quantifiable or, or logical. Um, another aspect of this from Dundee, Dundee City Council, who are changing for the future, so that's good news. Dundee uh, low admission zone scheme has been introduced and we've got a map of this um, and the map shows the whole of the middle of Dundee and uh, you won't be able to enter there if you have a car older than um, a, than a certain age um, uh, it, it's 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 a pretty pretty new vehicle so if if you are maybe a less affluent and you've got an older car and this car is important to you for you getting around um, you're no longer wanted uh, in the middle of Dundee, I'm afraid. And the BBC summarises all this. New planning rules to help hit Scottish emissions targets. So it's not, they're not actually Scottish emissions targets. They're global emissions targets imposed on Scotland and accepted by our lame politicians. Um, so MSPs have signed off on new planning rules for Scotland, which aim to help hit climate change targets while cutting the use of private cars. So they're going to cut the use of private cars, they're going to limit our mobility, they're going to put us into 20-minute cities. They're not arguing for this case, they're just imposing it. And um, they are not basing this on anything real because the difference this will make, CO2, global warming, however want, you want to uh, express it, is absolutely minuscule. It's, 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 it's utterly trivial. Whatever you think the level of CO2 is doing uh, to the globe, this is irrelevant. So this is a, an excuse for behaviour modification. This is not anything to do with the climate. Uh, indeed. Now, sticking with economy, but moving back to Russia again, uh, I just wanted to uh, highlight this tweet from the European Commission. David, uh, this says, uh, when Putin started his brutal war, uh, against Ukraine. The EU moved quickly and decisively. We've imposed nine rounds of heavy sanctions against Russia, crippling its ability to finance this war. Uh, and of course, the UK absolutely pushing the same kind of narrative. But in the meantime, uh, reality isn't quite the same. Um, so here is a report here from December. Russia's crude exports to India up 14 fold, ex uh, exports to China double. Russia focuses on other markets. Uh, and then we've got Reuters here, Russia post record current account surplus of 227 billion in 2022. So it doesn't seem to be working too well. So I just thought we would have a look at uh, some of the measures. Now this, these numbers uh, are, are widely publicized. Uh, but if we look at uh, exports, for example, the EU, uh, because they're tweeting out, so I thought I would look at, uh, at their 
so they said they suggested that, that Russia's exports would fall by 30 percent. They've actually risen by 14 percent. Uh, the balance of sur uh, trade surplus, uh, the EU forecast uh, minus 22 percent. In reality, it's gone up by 66 percent. Imports, the EU said, would fall by 35 percent. They have fallen, by, but by only 9 percent. Uh, GDP, the EU said that Russian GDP would fall by 11 percent. It has fallen, but by only 3 percent. And if we compare uh, these figures to what's going on in Western Europe, uh, I don't I think it stacks up pretty well. Uh, but then we've got the ruble. Well, the EU didn't give any forecast on that, but that is up by 15 percent. So, uh, David, sanctions are working well. Well, they are in Russia. Um, we'll come to this in extra time, perhaps. Uh, Japan's not looking so good. Uh, there are many things we've been reporting on this uh, weekly on the, on the column. There are many major strains uh, shown in the Western economy, in the banking system, in finance, and state finance. So the cracks are showing in the West, if not in Russia. Yes. Now, at the beginning of the program, uh, David Bryan used the word coup, uh, but not the only person to be using the word coup, word coup at the moment. No, here we have this coming into the mainstream. Jeremy Clarkson, columnist in the Times, is saying uh, we're, we're in the midst of a coup, but who the hell's behind it, he asks. That's a good question and a good observation. Uh, so he writes, uh, my son came over for father and son chat the other day. Uh, we laughed about what innocuous word had been banned that day and who'd, who'd been cancelled. And then after the pause, he said with a solemn face, you do know there's a war going on, don't you? Um, and it, you're talking about a war on us, not in uh, not on U Ukraine. And he, he continued to think about what typically happens uh, in a military operation and look at what the woke left has done here. It seized control of our television and radio stations to such an extent that last week, Sophie Ramoth said on the BBC News at Six with a straight face, and now over to our LGBT and diversity correspondent. Uh, and he concluded... At least Arthur Scargill had the decency to get on a soapbox and state his aims in public. This lot don't. They sit at home, hiding in the impenetrable shadow of anonymity, inventing new rules to ensnare anyone and everyone they deem to be unworthy. Monty Python jokes in the Spanish Inquisition sketch that it was a crime of heresy by thought, but today it's a reality. Now, this is a, a good article. There's a couple of things that aren't quite right. These people don't sit at home. They sit in Parliament, they sit in think tanks, they sit in our institutions, they sit in academia, they sit in many important places because they've had the long march through the institutions and they sit in our institutions now. But that aside, this is a sound observation that it is a war. And uh, Mr Clarkson, welcome, uh, welcome to the battlefront. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and Mark, uh, sticking with politics and so on, head over to the United States now. And uh, well, Patrick, a couple of weeks ago, was talking about the, the issue of selecting uh, a new speaker for the uh, Congress. Now, of course, that uh, speaker was indeed elected eventually after countless uh, rounds of election, uh, rounds of voting to try to get him in. Uh, well, what's, uh, what's the latest going on here? Well, this is kind of about the, the substance of it and the range of opinions that have, put, have been put out about it. Initially, the media portrayed the selection of the new House Speaker as almost pure chaos, largely pointless, and party infighting in the Republican Party. And what we're showing on the, the next slide here is an article at republicbroadcasting.org, where I do a weekly radio show. 
And this talks about the Freedom Caucus, which is about 46 key Republicans among 222 Republicans in the U.S. House. And that's compared to 212 Democrats. That's the current balance. But the Freedom Caucus, um, as Wayne Root is pointing out in this RBN article, there's a point to all of this. It's not just a bunch of pointless chaos. Uh, the Freedom Caucus made McCarthy the House Speaker, and it's dependent on a number of key reforms. Now, the next slide is the, you might say, the left-wing view or the center-left internationalist view on this. This is from the Brookings Institution. I won't comment uh, much on this except to go to the next one after this. And this is what the Brookings Institution has to say about it. Unlike past factions that often occupy the political center, making common cause with minority party lawmakers, far-right Freedom Caucus members, there are 46 of them, generally hail from safe, red, a.k.a. conservative seats, and often vote against large bipartisan deals. Some of them spearheaded efforts to keep former President Trump in office after he lost the 2020 election, and almost all of the returning members of the House voted in the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol to overturn the results of the presidential election. Once again, they're trying to say the conservative congressmen who suspected uh, election theft were trying to overturn the results when, in fact, they felt the election had already been overturned and they wanted to correct that. So it's a constant mischaracterization of what went on in those November elections in 2020. <clears throat> Moving on in this same slide, many Freedom Caucus members demanded that Republican leaders loosen the procedural reins. That's because in recent decades, House majorities have centralized authority over the agenda in leaders' hands. So uh, even the Brookings Institution is admitting here that uh, with the Freedom Caucus uh, given Kevin McCarthy conditions to be House Speaker, the Speaker himself is not going to have so much power and so much sway over the House agenda. So let's say the House wanted to try and end the Fed or do something more dramatic, it might become a little easier to do more uh, a paradigm-shifting legislation. And this is what um, the more conservative so-called right-wing writer, uh, uh, William, uh, or Mr. Root had to say, Wayne Root, excuse me. Uh, and here's an intriguing uh, perspective on the tumultuous process of Congress naming the new GOP Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, from alt-writer Wayne Allen Root. Uh, now Trump wants to be president again. Trump has Trump never saw the House Speaker as his calling. He was flattered by my idea to be House Speaker for a change, but he never wanted the job. House Speaker takes up too much time. Trump needs to be free to run for president again. So there's this uh, rumor that Trump is going to run again. Trump plays chess at a much higher level. My idea, Mr. Root is saying, speaking in the first person, was a good one. Trump just made it happen in a different way. You see, Trump is the newly elected House Speaker, just not in name. In name, the title goes to Kevin McCarthy. But guess who got McCarthy elected? Trump. And guess who control Mac controls McCarthy's every move as House Speaker? The MAGA, America First, loyal Trump members of the Freedom Caucus. So this might sound a little fantastic on the surface, but this is how, how wide-ranging the views are on on the speakership of Mr. McCarthy. On the one hand, that he's just a toady for a bunch of disgruntled right-wingers. That's what the left wing says. Uh, on the far extreme, you might say to the right, they're saying that he's actually acting in Trump's stead to kind of set the table 
for Trump to return to run for president again in 2024. And so uh, uh, that just kind of provides the perspective at, at the widest possible um, range, uh, a look at the widest possible perspective on what's going on there. But um, uh, moving on here a little bit more, look, and look at what, look at what McCarthy got, um, what they got McCarthy to agree to, excuse me, allowing just one member of the GOP Congress to move to vacate the speaker's chair, meaning if McCarthy doesn't keep his word to Trump, uh, to Trump conservatives, he's out on a moment's notice. McCarthy had to agree to give three members of the Freedom Caucus seats on the powerful House Rules Committee, including House outspoken Representative Jim, uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio. The new draft rules McCarthy agreed to will prevent any new increases in spending. Any legislation that increases spending will never see the light of day. Raising of the debt limit will be very difficult, or at least, you know, somewhat more difficult. Um, and then to summarize, McCarthy also agreed to a requirement for 72 hours before any bill comes up for a vote, meaning that members now have time to actually read a bill before voting on it. Well, we can hope so. McCarthy agree agreed to allow floor votes on term limits and border security. Get that? I put special emphasis on that. So term limits and border security, like I say, more dramatic changes might get more attention and be more achievable. And summarizing here, McCarthy agreed to establish a committee to investigate the weaponization of the federal government, in particular efforts by the FBI and national security agencies to influence elections in favor of Democrats and punish conservatives. And finally, McCarthy's first act as House Speaker was to repeal funding for 87,000 new IRS agents. The Senate probably won't pass that repeal, and Biden doubtly uh, uh, pretty much would not sign that. It, it's doubtful that he would sign it, that is. And so, um, nevertheless, it, it's seen as a symbolic thing. The only other thing I'll add to wind this up is the Freedom Caucus's on view, uh, excuse me, the Freedom Caucus's view on Social Security, however, um, I would say myself, in my opinion, is somewhat wrongheaded. They're talking about uh, trimming it way back, possibly, always speaking of Social Security as an entitlement. But um, I took part in a economics conference back in 2011 called Economics as If God Mattered. And E. Michael Jones, the noted Catholic author, was there. And they talked about the fact that Social Security is deferred wages. It's the wages workers put into the system, and they indeed are entitled to collect and not have them arbitrarily cut. So that's the one, you might say, um, flaw or potential flaw among an otherwise pretty sound Freedom Caucus agenda. So this is the this is what McCarthy had to agree to, and this really kind of shows the whole perspective on this whole issue. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mark. Uh, I know David wants to come back to you on that on that last point, but look, David, we're absolutely out of time for the main news, so we'll keep that for extra. Uh, but uh, Brian, we're going to finish with a little bit of video if you'd like to introduce it. Okay. Thank you for that, Mike. Well. It's been wonderful to be up here north of the border. And I'd, I'd just like to say we met so many wonderful people in Glasgow, but I've been talking to people in, in other places as we've moved around a little bit up here. But David was kind enough um, before the, the march on Saturday uh, to take me to a very beautiful uh, part of Scotland, not too far north of Glasgow. Uh, but we took a little bit of video clip because we thought we'd loved, we would like to share the peace 
uh, and serenity with our UK column viewers and listeners. So this is just a little bit of video clip that I took with my phone. But uh, I thought it was so wonderful. We thought we'd share it as the play out for today's news. So, David, you've brought me to this spectacular location. I believe we're somewhere north of Glasgow. Tell us, well, tell us, tell the UK column viewers where we are. This is beautiful Loch Catrine. This is where Glasgow's water supply comes from. And uh, as reservoirs go, it's rather wonderful. It's entirely natural and it was built, the, the, the Victorians built some huge pipelines to take the clean and, and pure water down to the big city of Glasgow and uh, solved the cholera outbreaks in doing so. Okay, so it's very quiet here today and we, we took a drive through some very pretty scenery and stopped at another very attractive piece of water. Quite a few, well, several guys fishing. They were pretty tough because they were there in their camper wagons and a tent and, and a few kayaks as well. Um, so that's obviously the place to be. That was Loch Venneker and that was a few hardy pike fishermen out in the depths of winter, um, dedicated to the sport. Okay. And, and, and this is, so this is, a, this is a, a part of Scotland called the Trossachs and it's, it's very pretty. Okay, and we're on our way down to Glasgow for this um, freedom gathering today. So how do you think it'll be? I, I really don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's starting in Glasgow Green and uh, I, I actually don't know what to expect. This has been a, a, during the whole lockdown, during the jockdown, during all the oppression we've been through. These hardy souls have gathered at Glasgow Green uh, very frequently to give one another support and encouragement. And, and they're still going there and uh, they're still talking about why we need to be free and what the state's doing that's making us increasingly less free. So we're going down for a chat, we're going down to meet some good people and uh, I, I really don't know what to expect but uh, it should be fun. It, it will be fun and we'll take a part two for our audience so stay with us. Okay, brilliant. Thanks for that, Brian. Uh, David, you were waving something at me, but I couldn't quite see what it was. Is there something you want just to mention briefly? I mean, very briefly. Well, just a reminder to anyone who's uh, within travelling distance of Motherwell. Uh, we're meeting UK Column is having a meet-up at Motherwell tonight, 6.30 for 7 at the Glow Centre. Uh, the speakers will include Brian Gerrish, uh, Dr Bruce Scott and Richard Lucas. And I'll be there and... Uh, there will be many questions from the audience and many cups of tea will be will be consumed and we'll, uh, we'll have a really good time. Tea? I thought you could have done better than that, but OK, we'll talk about that in extra. We'll be back in, for extra in a couple of uh, a couple of minutes. Uh, stick with us if you're a UK column member. Otherwise, we'll see you as usual at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.